Hello, and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the associate editor of the Journal of Entrepreneurship and Public Policy and the Quarterly Journal of Austrian Economics, as well as a fellow for the Mises Institute and the Ratio Institute. As well as being a columnist for Entrepreneur Magazine, he's also an associate professor of entrepreneurship at Oklahoma State University. It's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Per Blund. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Firstly, I wanted to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your background. Well, okay. So I'm uh, originally a computer guy, I suppose, computer and business, um, uh, born and raised in Sweden. I went into politics and political science, studied that, uh, and then happened to end up in economics um, by chance, more or less and with an interest primarily in entrepreneurship. And that's why I studied that right now. Um, I, I, would, I moved from Sweden to the U.S. for grad school, and now I have a career here in the U.S. All right. Um, so I wanted to start off by talking to you a bit about a relatively recent talk you did for the Mises Institute about the applications of Austrian economics to businesses. You stress the importance of creating value for customers who often aren't as aware of what they demand as conventional economics would lead us to believe. So I wanted to firstly ask you to give us a brief rundown of the talk and how the principles of Austrian economics can help businesses succeed. Right. So in, in Austrian economics, the, the starting point is really that value is an experience uh, in the eyes of the user. So <clears throat> any product or service that is produced, it has value if the consumer actually uses it and the consumer um, gains some sort of satisfaction from using it. And, and this sort of means that anything that is used to produce those things are valuable because of their contribution to the experience that the consumer has. Which makes it a little bit difficult because in a business, you usually start with an idea, but then you have costs and then you put put together all these materials and production process, you hire people, all of this stuff, and then you produce the good. And then you offer that on an open market and hopefully you have uh, enough customers and they're willing to pay the price and everything. And then and then you, you make a profit if everything goes well. So typically, uh, entrepreneurs tend to think about it in terms of, oh, I want to produce this sort of thing. And then they say, okay, so how much would it cost to produce this thing? They calculate the cost and they add a, a markup or a profit um, margin to it. And that's sort of their price. And then they enter the market and they try to sell it at that price, which is completely backwards uh, from an Austrian economics point of view, simply because you are not considering at all how the product is actually valued. What want does it actually satisfy? What is the experience for consumers? How highly do they value this good compared to all other alternatives that they have? And what difference does it make in their lives? So what you should do as a business, especially if you're an entrepreneurial business and you create something new, is try to figure out how can you deliver the greatest benefit possible to the consumer? And then from there you can sort of get an idea of how much would they be willing to pay in, in money terms for this thing. So say you're, you're producing something that hasn't existed before, some kind of widget, and you think that this is going to make a, a tremendous change in their lives. So they're going to value it really, really highly, which means you can sell it for, say, $1,000 each, and they would still consider that to be a, a great deal 
So they would still be so much better off that the thousand dollars is nothing. Let's say. Well, as soon as you establish that, then you then then you know what you have to deal with. And then you realize that, well, thousand dollars. If that is what what they can pay for it, then I need to keep my cost costs well below that amount. So what you're doing as an entrepreneur uh, and as a business leader too is really trying to figure out how to keep the costs and therefore also the in a sense the production technology keeping the cost as low as possible and definitely lower than the price uh, that the customers will be willing to pay. So you see, it's, it's, it's completely backwards. You have to start with the actual value that you're going to produce and then work your way back to figure out if is this a good idea or not. And then how can I best implement this idea and, and make it a product that is valuable and in a sense makes profit for the customer and for myself as well. So often uh, economic models, when used to analyze the way businesses operate, require the use of a lot of assumptions that are virtually never true in the real world, such as perfect competition and information. So even when we try to account for confounding variables, the complexity of the market and all the factors that go into a consumer's decision can never truly be accurately modeled. So that being said, you yourself as an economist founded several startups. So I wanted to ask you about how economics and specifically Austrian economics have influenced the way you ran those companies and how that impacted the success or failure of those enterprises? Well, it's a little bit of the other way around, actually. Um, it's because I, I tried my wings with those companies and, and failed miserably and fast um, that, that I've, I've really come to understand the power of Austrian economic thinking. So uh, my little attempts in the market were really before I was a trained Austrian economist, so I'm, I learned from, from those mistakes and I know exactly what mistakes I made. I made exactly the mistake that I just told you um, that I, 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 I was producing really for myself uh, a service or a good. And I, I considered it valuable, but I didn't realize or didn't think enough about how this would be valuable to others. I just assumed it would be. And I, I thought from my own perspective that it should be. And therefore, I should be able to sell it. Instead, what I should have done, of course, is is talk to as many many potential customers as possible, uh, figure out exactly who am I targeting and who can I I, I support and and provide this benefit to. How does it benefit them? What type of, of of price would they be willing to pay and so forth? So you can say I wasn't a trained economist at that point. So. Uh, and I'm sure and I'm not sure that would have been a, actually a, a benefit either. <laughs> but but um, had I been a trained Austrian economist, I would have done things much differently. So, what's one thing that Austrian economics teaches that you would recommend um, business owners or startup founders um, implement that you think that they um, don't already do? Well, I think <clears throat> here's the thing with with Austrian economics that most. I would say most are all uh, experienced entrepreneurs, especially serial entrepreneurs who have started a, a number of companies and have succeeded at least once, perhaps. They are sort of Austrians already. They just don't know that there is a, a theoretical framework and, a, in a sense, a terminology for it either. So they don't really have words for what they have grasped and the sort of intuition that they have. <clears throat> so if you ask any, any uh, experienced entrepreneur, they would they would tell you that what matters is the customer. Uh, they would tell you that you should always start with the customer. Without the customer, you're nothing. And it doesn't really matter what you think as a producer. 
what matters is whether you can sell it and whether uh, whether someone else actually values it. So you need to involve the customer as soon as possible. And that's sort of what we're doing in in these type, types of models and, and frameworks that we have developed over the years and, and that we teach students in entrepreneurship, that they need to involve the customer. But typically, it's it's still it still misses the point of what value is and, and tries to address it completely in monetary terms, which is understandable because that's how you calculate profit in a business, right? That you, what you say, take revenues minus costs and, and there's your profit or loss. So, so that makes sense. The issue, though, is that the price, the revenue that you eventually might get, is actually a, a, an effect of or a result of really a function of the value that consumers expect from the product. And what you're selling is really the full experience, not the thing itself. So um, some companies are really good at customer service. They're really good at offering guarantees and warranties and things like that to make sure that the the, the customer uh, has less of a threshold. They would probably put it that way, uh, less of a threshold to buy because there's less risk involved. Well, this risk is actually actually exactly what Austrians are talking about. That you, the consumer does not know the value of the product they're buying. They're hoping, and they have probably some scenarios in mind for how to use it. Maybe they have some have imagined that oh, this is going to be make me a great person, or this is going to make me really popular, or whatever it is. Um, and and those values, they imagine these things, but they can't know that it is true. They don't know that until they actually try it out and they actually use it. Uh, but I would say that this offering these additional support and warranties and and callbacks after the fact and checking in with them and sort of establishing a relationship is not really only about lowering the threshold for consumers to sort of take the plunge and buy your product it is it is really part of the product itself so it's part of the value that you offer um it's not just uh the threshold to to get the sale done so it's it's, it's too mechanistic view in a sense it sort of leaves the the human touch and the human relation and the human psychology out of it and that's that's something that Austrian economics would uh it really stresses both that value is is personal, is subjective. It's something that rests in your mind, in your experience as a consumer, and that's where you have to start. Uh, and, and then the translation of that into money terms and and a strategy for your business. And so, another thing that I found very interesting in your talk is that for both the producer and the consumer, everything is is done backwards. So um, the producer doesn't know what the value of his product, um, at least if he's innovating something new, will be to the consumer until he's actually produced it. Um, you mentioned, I think, very interestingly in your talk, um, a quote from Henry Ford, um, in which he he said that if he had asked um, consumers what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Um, they, they wouldn't have even been able to, to picture a, a car. So um, I think Steve Jobs had a similar point of view. And so the producer doesn't really know what the value of his product, um, his or her product is until they're they're producing it. And the consumer doesn't know um, whether or not this this um, good or service will, will be worth what, what he's paying for it until he's he's purchased it. Right. So if, for example, um, uh, I go and buy an iPhone um, that, that, that was just released, I don't know. Um, whether whether or not I'm going to enjoy this, I don't know how good it is. It, it's brand new, um, you know, and I can't use it until I've paid for it and purchased it, right? So, 
that, that's that's one of those things. Um, with, for example, clothes, um, it's a bit more straightforward for the consumer, um, but still the producer has no idea um, how how the consumer is going to value it until it's actually produced. So, is there any are, are there any economic tools that allow producers to to better understand the the value uh, um, that their product may bring to to consumers? Well, not not to understand the value, perhaps. I mean, it it is really about understanding people. So, I mean, uh, uh, there's a literature on on uh, entrepreneurial judgment, where judgment is often understood as sort of a way to uh, emph- empathize with customers and to put yourself in their shoes and and figure out the situation they're in and what type of of thing and what type of experience they they would like. And and very often, I mean, you you have only yourself, so so you can say, well, I would have liked in the, this situation to have been treated this way, or or the, the the thing would work in this sense or or what have you right so producing different kinds of scenarios i'm not sure economics can help you a whole lot there because it's really about understanding people and and just like you mentioned people don't understand themselves so you can't really ask anyone you can't really you can have focus groups but focus groups can only do so much you can do surveys but surveys are very unreliable and and I mean, very often, if if you're producing something new, it's not until the customer has already bought it and and has used it for a while that the customer can know anything about the experience of using it and the value of having it. Uh, and, and and there's of course no way that you can figure this out in advance if the customer themselves cannot do it. So you need to imagine this, and well, you 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 play off of any strength you might have, imagination. Uh, is just sort of your your uh, psychologizing of the customer, your understanding of people in general, or how the what the market might look like. When in terms of economics as a tool, I would say it it helps a lot uh, in terms of figuring out where the market will be and how to how to uh, exploit this opportunity that you think you're seeing, right? So. Usually, when entrepreneurs are developing a new product and starting a new business, they go through a number of pivots, which means you're basically changing the direction of what you're doing because you learned something and you realize that what you were doing, oops, that doesn't work. Or here's a much better way. Or this type of product would be a whole lot better and more valuable to consumers, so I could charge more, whatever it is. So, so they're they're changing something very often fundamentally uh, in in what they're doing, um, and it's about being responsive to that and understanding what is going on. And, and this has very often also to do with what other economic actors are doing. Because what, what, what an entrepreneur is trying to do is really figure out how to meet the market where the market will be in, at a future point in time. So not only what will consumers value, what type of products, what type of services, but also what will other entrepreneurs offer at this point in time and in this location. So. And that's, of course, super hard because you're trying to second guess not only the consumer's mind, but also what are my competitors and potential future competitors? What are they up to? What are they trying to do? And I don't think you can you can figure out some of this out maybe with industrial espionage, but but you still need, need to figure out what would the world look like in a year or two? Or if you're producing a new automobile, uh, say a new, new design, that can take five or 10 years. So then you need to Try to envision what society like in five or ten years, and that's super hard, of course. 
uh, but but there are some things you can rely on, and 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 if the more you understand, I think uh, about economics and and the market as a process that evolves and 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 unfolds over time, but it's always uh, always complies with economic law. Then you can gain a much deeper understanding for what is actually going on, and thereby you can meet the opportunity much more head on and and profit from it. So I think uh, Austrians. Well, it, you can say that good entrepreneurs are Austrians already, and entrepreneurs who want to be good entrepreneurs, they they should they should study Austrian economics, not not necessarily the theorizing and things like that, but at least study uh, the implementations and applications of it. So the idea of the free market with minimal regulation and red tape is central to the theory of Austrian economics. So over the past few years, we've seen the United States become sharply divided in this regard, with states like California seemingly regulating every industry to the point where um, businesses and entrepreneurs leaving the state has become somewhat of a cliche. So Dr. Blund is someone with both theoretical expertise as an economist, as well as hands-on experience as a serial entrepreneur. I wanted to ask you... um, about what you think is the proper role of government as far as regulation goes. So some other economists I've spoken with from the Mises Institute, such as Dr. Walter Block, have gone as far as to suggest that the government's only only role is to protect life, liberty, and property, and nothing else. So what's your view? My personal view, you mean? Yes. Well, I, d- I don't think that the government can provide anything in a very effective and efficient manner. So... I would say that most of these functions that the government is providing uh, in terms of regulation, in terms of different standards in the marketplace, in terms of arbitration and all of those things are really uh, services that can be offered more effectively in the marketplace by market actors. So I don't mean that people should solve their own problems completely, but you can you can have people and businesses specializing into offering these services. So in, in that sense, I, I don't think there is a... a function for uh the government at all uh it doesn't the the market could work very well without government completely um and then whether we want a government which is really a a a force-based monopoly of certain services um i mean that's the definition of government right it's a monopoly of violence uh so the the issue i think that is more of a uh, it's partly an ethical issue and partly ethical political, I suppose. Economically speaking, I, I don't see a reason for for monopolizing any of these services, really. Um, even as far as that extends to, say, public services, like, for example, um, without without the government, um, who's going to be putting up streetlights or um who's going to create the roads um if if businesses do that do we then have to pay to use roads and if different businesses construct different roads do they then have to pay different prices for different roads um so this is something i was discussing with dr block and i wanted to get your take on is i mean what about a police department do you have to pay to call the police um what 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 is the role um of government how far does that reach um into and and where does the the role of private businesses start well, like I said, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure there is a, a, an economically efficient rule for the government at all. So, I mean, you, what would you say with, do you have to pay a fee when you call the police? Yeah, maybe, maybe some, some private police would, would do it that way. Others would offer a subscription service, yet others would offer it through insurance. 
I don't know. I mean, what, what entrepreneurs figure out is, is something that I can't foresee, of course. There's, it's impossible to predict. Uh, and it's impossible to predict how people respond to it and what people actually like with these things too. I mean, that's, that's why the market is, is, is never perfect at all. Uh, but it's unbeatable because you have so many people involved uh, using their imaginations and fantasizing and different things, and most of them fail. Uh, but some of them, uh, they they strike gold, as we call it. Uh, they they find uh, a type of product or type of experience that consumers really really like, uh, and then others tag along and do similar things, and then, then you sort of um, you. you continue to evolve that uh, type of, of product until someone disrupts it, come up, comes up with something even better. And, and a big efficiency issue with placing any type of service really in a, a violence-based monopoly is that you don't have this uh, mechanism anymore. You don't have this discovery of new ways of doing things and, and the creation of new value or anything like that. What you have is a specific service being offered, and there's really no incentive for anyone to develop, continue to develop, and 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 sort of evolve and innovate this product. Uh, instead, it, it becomes instead of as the market uh, sort of taking a step ahead, just like in the in the Henry Ford quote that you mentioned before, that entrepreneurs often have to imagine what consumers would benefit from before consumers even understand it. The government is typically responsive. So when there is an obvious lack of something, the government can step in if it has the monopoly in in, in that area. Whereas, if I think in in most or if not all areas, I mean entrepreneurs would have found that profit opportunity way before government bureaucrats and would have produced some kind of solution to it. And to the extent that it's not a good solution, um, other entrepreneurs would have stepped in and offered different versions of it or different enhancements or, or whatever. So I, I think it's important to realize that the economy is really a, a process and the government is not. So uh, it, it's hard It's hard for me economically to, to see how a process that is open-ended and under uncertainty as the market is, as the economy is, can be somehow enhanced or made better by something that is static. All right. Um, so finally, I wanted to ask you about your hometown of Sweden. So many left-leaning politicians refer to it as the ideal economy, where the social safety net virtually eliminates poverty and income inequality is among the lowest in the world. So, however, Sweden is also a highly pro-business economy with low corporate taxes, no minimum wage, and one of the highest rates of startups per capita anywhere in the world. So the downside is that all of this comes with exceptionally high income taxes, even for the average worker. So, Dr. Blunt, I wanted to get your take on the Swedish approach to the economy and if the United States has anything to learn from it. Well, I mean, the first thing to learn from it is to uh, describe it correctly. I mean, I think people have these weird ideas about how Sweden works. Um, and and uh, I mean, it's, they, they would say such things as there's no poverty and things like that. And and that's not true. I mean, you have thousands of homeless people in, in the capital of Stockholm, uh, and you definitely call them poor. Um, you have people who somehow uh, sort of get side they 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 find themselves in situations where the system does not reach them so even though there's a huge welfare state they still often find themselves in between the responsibilities of different agencies and different actors uh, so neither one would help them um, so there's there are plenty of stories like that and in 
in Swedish television um, that that should be fairly easily accessible. I think very much Sweden is a myth because people have sort of cherry picked from the history and they've taken much of Swedish government's really uh, uh, propaganda more or less about how things work. I mean, Sweden was a really poor country uh, 150 years ago. It was one of the poorest in Europe. Uh, and it started to deregulate uh, like crazy, opened up for free trade, opened up for businesses, much of what you mentioned there with low, low business taxes and so forth, but a few regulations as well. Uh, had a very strong and influential classical liberal movement back then in the 1870s, 1880s, around there, which started sort of a... a a process of, of the country lifting itself up, much as we've seen uh, in in uh, other countries, usually earlier in, in the West, uh, where they started creating prosperity. Um, and with the prosperity, this government expanded a welfare state. But for to begin with, uh, there's, there's great research on this by Andreas Berg at Lund University. Um, who has sort of tracked this back 150 years and, and written a book on it and plenty of articles too. Um, so, so the welfare state expanded, but not as fast as the economy expanded, which means it was a, sort of a, a burden, but not that much of a burden. And the government typically stayed clear of meddling in the economy. So it was sort of a, a I don't know what to call it. It's, they, they had sort of two approaches at once. So they had a, a, a welfare state that was with all these social programs uh, and sort of lift up or, or help those in need. At the same time, they tried to not regulate the economy a whole lot uh, in order to let businesses produce value. Yet at the same time, the, the, the labor unions were, were fairly uh, influential, but they too were... Uh, against inflation very often they were pro-growth and things like that and they realized sweden is a small country is very dependent on exports and and things like that um what happened was that in around 1970 the swedish government changed its its tune completely pretty much so it went very radical and started meddling with the economy too and going on that route uh, it took 22 years for the Swedish government to implode completely. So in 1992, the uh, Swedish Central Bank gave up the Swedish currency and the, and the fixed exchange rate. Uh, the government abdicated uh, a couple of years before that. Uh, all parties got together and said, this, this is impossible. This is unsustainable. We can't offer these uh, welfare benefits. There's no way of paying for this. And we need to pay back the national debt. So since then, after 92, around there, um, the Swedish government, all parties have sort of been uh, in agreement to roll back the welfare state, introduce limits to how generous different programs are. Uh, they cut back on taxes, paid off much of the national debt and so forth. It's changed again a little bit in the last few years, but it's, Sweden is, has this reputation of being sort of a socialist utopia. Uh, while at the same time, the, the Sweden, Sweden success story is really a free market story, which is so it, it's a little tricky to talk about because there are so many, many components. But, but you're right in, in that the Swedish government is, is fairly, I mean, 
comparatively speaking, fairly hands-off and low-tax country for business. Uh, it's far from perfect, of course. Um, but still, that part of its policy is definitely more hands-off than in terms of, say, taxing of, of labor or, or social programs and things like that. So do you think um, the, the, the Swedish approach of being extremely pro-business and not, interfere, not interfering with the process of wealth creation uh, on the one hand, and then um, turning around and um, taxing at exceptionally high rates, any income that's generated from that, and then using that to strengthen social programs, do you think any, any of that is um, relevant in an American context? Do you think that's an idea that work, that, that would That, that can be imported into the United States. Obviously, Sweden is a much more homogenous society. Um, there are a lot of differences between, um, you know, Sweden and the United States, um, just in terms of demographics. So do you think that th those sorts of ideas um, that, that work in Sweden um, may also or, or do also have the potential of working in the United States? Well, I think some some every country can basically learn something from other countries. Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of Uh, culture and history that goes into how politics works in different countries. So you, you can't really take one policy from one country and, and place it into another country because all the institutions are different. The culture is different. The, the interpretations of things are different. The perspectives are different and things like that. We can definitely learn um, that, that you get more economic growth from less regulation of the economy. But I mean, we know this already. Um, the, the U.S. might have somewhat lower taxes on, on different things. At the same time, the U.S. is much more corporatist with a big business having a lot of influence in, over, over uh, legislation and, and over the executive branch as well, which is, exists to a much lesser degree, I, I guess you could say, in, in Sweden because money doesn't rule as much there. Uh, at the same time, the Swedish system is, is different. Uh, it's, it's sort of corporatist by design, Uh, so every year there's a, a meeting between the uh, the uh, uh, employers federation, the big labor unions, and the government, and they sort of agree on on the uh, the uh, the increases or not of of wages and, and things like that for the next year, which is of course corporatism, mm -hmm. but through representatives, I, I suppose. But it's not single businesses buying favors as it, as it is here. I mean, there there I can see many problems with practically any such system. Uh, I, I think the, the, the main issue is if you are imposing whatever rules, burdens, taxes, call it whatever you like, that, um, that, that burden entrepreneurs in trying to figure out how to create value, you're going to get less value. It's that simple, really. Well, um, those are all the questions that I have for you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Once again, thank you everyone for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.